Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Hello, welcome back. We're in season four of Undermine, episode 45 by Osiris Media. And I'm Tom Marshall, and I'll be your host as we revisit and redefine Fish's fabled Fall 97 tour. And that's the now legendary legendary tour where they destroyed America, invented cow funk, and possibly invented pantyhose. Okay, that last part is almost completely incorrect, but I included it because I know my wife is listening, and she just told me just now that only weird dudes who grew up in the 70s and earlier use the word panties. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's true, but I had to get it into a podcast. All right. Anyway, it's been a wild ride and we made it to the tour's final destination, the banks of the Hudson River, Albany, New York, keeping his hands and feet and panties inside the ride at all time until we've come to a complete stop. It's my co-host, New York Times bestselling author, Benji Eisen. Hi, Benji. Hi, Tom. Uh, can I ask you a question? <laughs> Is it about my cat poster? No, it's not about your cat. It's about your warranty. Um, or maybe it's about <laughs> panties. Um, how, sure. did, how did we do last night at the Ardmore Music Hall for Osiris Live? 
Well, actually, as of this moment, that's still in in the future. Right. But for our listeners, it's now the morning after. (laughs) Well, that depends on when they listen. Well, okay. (laughs) Depending on when they listen to this, there still might be time for them to make a one minute video with their fall 97 thoughts, stories, memories, anecdotes. So if any of you at home decide to do that, and uh, I hope you do, well, then post it and tag Osiris Pod. And I'd encourage you to do that because you're a huge part of this story and we definitely want to hear from you. But I should mention that previously when we asked for videos, it was part of a contest that ended when we gave away the prize, a handwritten set of lyrics to Ghost last night already. You just said that was in the future. I'm so confused. Me too. I know. <laughs> well, one thing I know for sure, and RJ, you're going to love this. Uh, there is still time to sign up for Osiris Premium, where you get a bunch of uh, bells, whistles, bonus episodes, ad-free streams, archives, no panties, but so on and so forth, all for less than the price of a magazine. <laughs> Depending on the era. And depending on the magazine, but um, enough jibber jabber. I I love that expression, jibber jabber. Um, We are approaching the end of fall 97, but there is one more show on the tour after tonight, but no more driving. That's because this was the first night of the tour closing two night stand in Albany. And Tom, I know that our guest is in the waiting room and, you know, we forgot to leave magazines in there because we subscribe to Osiris Premium instead. Plus they're so so expensive. uh, (laughs) Yes, exactly. So let's bring on our guest now. But before we play hardball with him and ask him penny questions, I want to uh, give the background bits that I usually do in this intro after you bring him in. Okay, yeah. We set it up so that we can knock it down. Um, our guest today, and I think he's coming in right now, is a repeat. Hello, Scott. Hi, everybody. Um, <laughs> and it's one of the only repeats of guests that we've had on this entire fall tour. But chronicling fish is part Ooh. of his day job. And since we've been chronicling fish fall 97 tour this season on Undermine, he is a bird of our feather. Straight from a long day of flipping desks over at the Jam Base office, it's Scott Bernstein. Hi, Scotty. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me back. It's been an incredible season, and I'm glad to be part of the uh, penultimate show of the <laughs> Thanks. You but, see, that that's the correct usage, Benji, of that yes, word. Noted. Noted. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to penny issues later, <laughs> but, but noted. Uh, Thanks, Scott. And, you know, before Tom starts in with the the uh, Inquisition, I, I still need to give everybody the show notes that I usually do at, at the top. So so take the top sheet, pass it around. Today's show is 12-12-97 uh, in Albany at the Knickerbocker Arena. Well, you know, it was the Knickerbocker when the band played their, their first show in the building, uh, the 12-9-95 Blizzard show with the uh, infam- infamous Beavis and Butthead, You Enjoy Myself. But it's now it's now two years later, 1997, and Pepsi has taken over the naming rights. Spoiler alert, by the way, guys, um, Fish won the Pepsi challenge. But um, in any case, uh, here's the thing, is that the building is a mid-sized hockey arena, right? And for, for many years, it was home to the AHL hockey team, the River Rats. But that's not why the Knickerbocker was so notable in our circles. It was a legendary stop for Grateful Dead tours, um, in part because the town was well known to be, you know, welcoming 
to the, the whole traveling deadhead circus and certainly to the tourist dollars that such a takeover brought with it, which of course, you know, Fish has that similar thing. So in fact, in 1996, which was halfway between Fish's first appearance here and, and, and this one, um, the Grateful Dead released a box set called Dozing at the Nick, uh, which was a, a highly regarded, critically acclaimed three-CD box set from their three-night stand in the spring of 1990. Um, to sum it up, at the time, the Knickerbocker for Deadheads had the same kind of elevated status that the mothership in Hampton did. Um, you know, I'm talking for Deadheads. I don't know if it ever did that for Fish, which is, I think, where I'm going with this. Uh, a, a part of what made it so special is that, you know, the mayor would stamp his approval, the police were friendly, and the city allowed camping along the riverfront and in the parking lots, and I, I believe wherever you could pitch a tent, which, you know, was unheard of, the, the mayor saying, come on in. Well, actually, no one was pitching a tent for fish. There was literally a blizzard in 1995, <laughs> and there would have been snow on the ground for these two nights. But, Scotty, is, is Benji right here? Uh, you're the journalist. <laughs> well, actually, you're both journalists. <laughs> oh, is, is there something special that makes fish runs at this venue stand out? Well, they've certainly played particularly well there, and they came back so much. I mean, between 1995 and 2000, they played there every year besides 1996. Um, and I think it goes to what Benji was saying. It's just the perfect size, not only venue, but city to take in a fan base. It's not too big, whereas the garden, if you walk three blocks away, in any direction, you wouldn't know fish is in town. I mean, you go, you walk uh, 10 blocks from the Nick and you still know that the hippies have taken over. And uh, I, I think that that was a, a big part of it. I've seen every show that fish has played at the Nick, which has become more, more rare in, in recent years. Um, but to, to come out with such a banger like they did in 1995, the Albany EM is still my favorite fish jam of all time. I only listen to it on the anniversary of, of the show. And every year it just brings this shitty new grin to my face. Wow. Well, and the anniversary is actually, even though our our listeners are, are listening to this afterwards, the anniversary is coming up, which means also of, of note, I suppose, is that this show is two years almost to the day, you know, later after that, when they when they came back. Um, so let's go in from the cold. Let's take our seats inside the arena. Um, the lights go down and the band comes out with Funky Bitch, which I have to say, you know, it, they've they've opened with it before, but it always feels kind of like a weird opener to me. Maybe because I'm just you know I'll admit I'm not the biggest fan of the song, but it it does have that kind of arena filling sound and energy to it that makes for uh, an admittedly good indoor arena opener. Scotty, uh, what do you make of it? It was also the first time that they had played it to open a show in the states since 1994. So we're talking a three year wow. period at at that point. And it's not a typical funky bitch. Um, it's extended with a really cool jam. And it's only a minute longer than your typical funky bitch. But what a minute it was. There is just this incredible segue into 2001 where all four members just really set the tone for it. It's more like, you know, Mo does a really good job of... Um, you know, signaling their transitions. You'll know like a few minutes 
what they're what's coming next before they actually start the song. And this was one of those type of, of transitions in 2001. And again, while it's only a minute longer than usual, what a minute it was. And, and I'm a big fan of situations like that. Um, you know, you look at the first night of uh, Fish's run in, in Japan in 2000, and they played this bouncing around the room that has this like 20 second jam as part of it. And even though it's only 20 seconds and people like look at me like I'm crazy, I just get off on anything that's a little different than the usual. Even if it's short, it doesn't need to be long. Uh, the width is fine, too. <laughs> they, um, they do that with free sometimes. And, and then all of a sudden you hear them go back into it. And I kind of <laughs> feel like feel like mad when they go back into it. But that 30 seconds makes a huge difference. Exactly. I, I want to uh, just voice my um, appreciation for Funky Bitch. I think it's, um, and it's not because the song's particularly uh, phenomenal, but Fish, uh, I always get the sense that Trey selecting that song means that he really wants to play guitar. You know, it's like got such a bluesy, uh, fun, uh, you know, Trey part. And he can just showcase himself, showcase his amp sound. I think it's just when he's feeling good about playing guitar, that song comes out and and it always seems to to set the mood and uh you know the earlier it is in the, in the show um so anyway you you referenced um the second song in the two slot we have 2001 and it's possibly a weird placement but it seemed to work there and then um cuz it's kind of like a a second opener and this one has the cow funk uh early on um and then we get camel walk taste bouncing all played well but the next thing that's like really like worth um focusing upon is probably that tweezer um scott can you take us there and, and take us through it yeah i mean it, it, it's started out with like a laid back funk jam straight the, the signature fall 97 complete with a breakdown where it's just <laughs> trey and page going at it which was particularly cool but then Trey just starts wailing. And, and as you had said, Funky Bitch set, set the tone. And there are some shows where each member of Fish, different members are MVPs. This night is about Trey <laughs> and is about Trey shredding all, all through, throughout. And, uh, you know, he, he gives a, like a tone clinic throughout and they go deep. It, it's not like the Hampton one that, that we discussed a few weeks ago where they worked into Black Eyed Katie. No, they, they, they did have the full rock peak and, and, and then lose structure completely. And, and Trey even go, goes major and, and, and plays some, some beautiful stuff in there. And the transition into Train Song is another incredible segue. Some of the most beautiful playing from Trey of, of the tour. And just a, a, a beautiful segment. Again, just a minute long, but what a minute it was.
Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, now that the tour is concluding, um, and, you know, we're one show away from the end of the tour, we can start looking at, at patterns. And and we know that this will be the final tweezer of the tour, right? As soon as they play it, we know that. There are five of them this tour, uh, beginning with Denver on eleven seventeen, as we all know. So, you know, if you look back at the song history, Tweezer was almost exclusively a second set song throughout the 90s until until this this point, until 97. Not without exception, but, you know, primarily. So, I mean, if you go back and you count them, if you think I'm exaggerating, you can do that. It was common for Tweezer to literally have streets of 35, 40 consecutive versions all in the second set. And then maybe they would throw one in the first or, you know, sometimes even in a third set. Then they'd put it right back into that second set slot for literally another long stretch of 20, 30, you know, consecutive times. So I, I know that this sounds, <laughs> I know it sounds like dorky minutia, you know, all of this is, right? But uh, it's legitimately notable somehow that three of the five tweezers from this tour are in the first set. Now, granted, you know, there could be and probably are arbitrary reasons for that. But you know, maybe some real ones. So, so Scotty, what do you think? I'm I'm asking you to to speculate here. Um, why do you think Tweezer was predominantly a first set song for the Fall '97 tour? Let's give a little extra context, and that is that Tweezer was one of the songs that Fish purposely stopped playing for a little while between Milan in in February and the Gorge. They went 37 shows without playing Tweezer, which still is the longest they've ever gone without playing that song. So, and I mean, in the Fish book, they, dark they days. talk Those about... Dark days. Yeah. <laughs> in the Fish book, they, they talk about purposely yeah. put, putting aside a number of songs. I believe Susie was 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 one of them. So I, I think when they brought it back, they wanted a fresh outlook on it. And one way to keep it fresh was to play it in different places. So that's why I, I think they decided, let's see what happens if we go for it in the first set. I remember that. I remember sort of those. Uh, I couldn't tell. I couldn't come up with a list of songs, but I do remember all of a sudden there were some songs off the plate. And it was an, Will, it was an Wilson, unusual. I think, was one of them. Yeah, I think they. My friend, my friend. They kind of wanted to pull out like their their primary support structure almost and like build a new band around new songs or, or whatever. But it was so great when those started coming back, wasn't it? <laughs> it was Absolutely. amazing. It was, yeah. it was it, it, not to get on a tangent, but it was also interesting because I remember when Fish came back from the first hiatus, I had it in my head, the little wouldn't it be cool if. And of course, I wanted to see you enjoy myself. I wanted to see Tweezer. But I also had this little thing in my head going, wouldn't it be cool if they came back and just were a whole new band, reinvented themselves all over again and just did all new material? I, I suppose that's, you know, sci-fi soldier. Yeah. Well, something had to give with all those songs that they debuted over the first two nights of summer 1997. I, I mean, their the repertoire is only so big, so it makes sense. Yeah, they had to pull and, some out to make space and, for and the new ones. Those songs need a lot of rehearsing. I mean, yeah. even though they've done those songs, My Friend, My Friend, they, they've played it, you know, I don't know how many times, they still need to rehearse it before they play it. Scott, um, so the beautiful fade, like you said, into Train Song, and that's worth listening to, you guys. Check it out. It's amazing. And then the set closes appropriately with a, a rocking zero, character zero. And Scott, what were your thoughts at set break? If you if you were to go back into, into the locker room, how'd we do, coach? 
<laughs> I, I thought it was 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 well played. The the tweezer was particularly memorable. Um, as I said, uh, the extra minute of uh, Funky Bitch made a difference. I remember the lights being particularly in- incredible. Uh, Chris always liked the Nick, and it really came came through there. And also, don't sleep on the taste. Um, uh, I know you've talked, you guys have talked about taste a lot, th- this tour. I can um, see through the lines. The yeah, lines. <laughs> uh, it still blows me away. Uh, I always thought it was light. Yeah. Um, so, but, uh, you know, the, Fall 97 was peak taste time. And, and this version is, is worth listening to. Um, well, I agree with you on that. And guys, I've got, I've got two fun facts for you right now. So the, the first fact is that, uh, fish in the, and again, this is dorky, but bear with me. Fish and the Grateful Dead both performed exactly 13 shows at this venue to date. And just like they performed exactly 21 shows the last time we talked to you, Scotty, uh, at Hampton. Um, so, you know, numerologists can fill us in on, on what that implies or, or whatever, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to hold because, you know, one of those bands is still touring, but, um, the second fun fact, and this one's really fun. So buckle up. We'll be right back after a quick 15 second break. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about one of our great partners, DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. If you're a musician and looking to get your music out there, DistroKid is the way to go. DistroKid is available for iOS and Android and is now available in Apple's App Store and the Google Play Store. More than a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all other major streaming services. And with DistroKid, you can upload new releases, see your financial progress, get notified when you've earned royalties, withdraw money from the app, view and share links, check your streaming stats, and a whole lot more. DistroKid has more features than any other music distributor. Check them out today. Go to distrokid.com, that's distrokid with a capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine for a special offer only for our listeners. That's distrokid, capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine. Thanks, distrokid. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Hey, we're back from break. And uh, during the break, we were we were talking about um, Benji's last uh, numerology exercise about Hampton and about this particular, the Knickerbocker Arena and the Grateful Dead. And I was thinking... Um, you know, Fish has played the Madison Square Garden so many times that there was a point when they surpassed the Dead's also respectable number of shows at the uh, at MSG. And I was thinking, I've got the two right guys here to ask the question: When did that occur? When did Fish pass the number of shows played, Scotty? 
I believe it was 52 shows for the dead. And I believe now Fish is in the late 60s. So I, I think that puts us at like 2018 or late Baker's Dozen. Oh, wow. They, so very recently. Well, Tom, the thing is, and I don't remember the exact number here, but the, the dead would settle in for residencies. They didn't do a Baker's Dozen, but they would do like eight shows there. Uh, They'd take up, they, they would take up a residency there for what seemed like maybe two weeks, a week and a half. Uh, and they were doing that in various cities, actually, you know, but but uh, where they would do sits here and then. But in New York, they did they would do like eight show runs there. So that's why their numbers got so high so fast. Got it. And and we got so into this discussion, I got to say, during the break um, that our guest, Scott Bernstein, he didn't flip a desk over, but he flipped an armchair over. <laughs> so I want to make sure that everyone calms down a little bit. A sight, a sight to see. <laughs> <laughs> Scotty's set two opens with um, a, a one-two pairing of Saw It Again and Piper. Would you? What, what did you think of that opening statement? I mean, 33 magical minutes. Uh, first of all, it was the first time I had seen Saw It Again. Uh, uh, and only the second time I had seen Piper following the Hampton run. And they just blew it out, both songs. I mean, there's so much metal jamming in, in both of these songs. It really blows the whole fall 97 is just about the funk uh, theme out the window because there's so many diverse and hardcore industrial style if uh, ethereal uh, moments, ambient moments that that are part of this magical one-two punch that that lasts thirty-three minutes, and it's a great example of don't always just go by the set list because you see saw it again into Piper, and you might not. Uh, you can't imagine what actually went down for those thirty-three magical minutes. the metal that you're talking about, we also saw that on the third night of Worcester. And you're right, that was an element of this tour that, that kind of gets forgotten, but that I I love, you know, um, and I, I love that third night of Worcester. I love this night, of, of course. Um, Tom, I actually, ha I have a question for you here. Um, I think it's an easy question and I think it's easy because I, I might be wrong, but I, I think there's probably a pretty straightforward answer. Um, swept away and steep. Right, this is almost obvious, but swept away and steep were Billy Breathe songs. So they were written just as Fish was exploding in arenas across America. Nineteen ninety six, before they destroyed America, they first had to uh, explode into the arenas. Right, so I feel like you know, swept away and steep are obviously companion songs. They have companion lyrics. Um, Much ado is all I see, and I feel like it's surrounding me. 
the crowd intrudes all day till I'm finally swept away. So, Tom, I mean, you were talking about the band and they're suddenly overwhelming the, the scene and the fan base. You know, I'm finally swept away. The crowd, the crowd intrudes all day. And then later the seething crowd <laughs> intrudes all day till I'm finally swept away. Um, is that is that right? I think I think I can answer that in in a not entirely straightforward way. <laughs> um, it's probably one of those answers that people may have trouble believing. Um, uh, very similar to when when people ask about Walls of the Cave, and the initials of that song are WTC, like World Trade Center, and the song is essentially about those buildings falling down on nine eleven, right? Well. So I know I'm briefly jumping to, to Fish 2.0 to draw this comparison, but the answer is strangely no. I, I didn't write it to be about 9-11, and I wasn't thinking at all about the towers collapsing when I wrote it. I was sort of sadly thinking of saying goodbye to my son Brody when I'm gone, hopefully a long time from now, but uh, words for him to read, you know, like someone might read, a, you know, uh, on a gravestone or something weird like that. So it, it, it really wasn't about 9-11. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, it was about 9-11 because it was in everyone's head and brain and no one could get rid of it. It was such a cataclysmic event. And the lyrics I wrote were morose and sad and a goodbye because of 9-11. But the fact remains, um, Walls of, uh, by the way, my son's fine. It wasn't no need for a goodbye. It was a future goodbye. Um, but anyway, um, Walls of the Cave uh, having the same letters as World Trade Center is a coincidence unless my brain is smarter than I am. <laughs> um, uh, but why did I bring up this sad tale? Uh, because of course I was thinking about Trey and fish and crowds intruding upon his world word world when I wrote the words um, to swept away and steep and probably worrying about him, you know, but it wasn't foremost in my mind, but it was just there. Wow. Um, that's interesting. Cause to me, you know, maybe the, the, whatever was foremost in your mind, you know, you don't need, need to save it, but maybe it's one of those things where I kind of like when fish songs, when I don't know what they're about, but I know they're about something, but this one always just seemed like, oh yeah. Like <laughs> talking about it, you know, like, cause especially with given the timing, but, um, you know, but back to Albany for a second. So, or for <laughs> back to Albany, a uh, period, uh, right after steep, uh, it's an interesting placement for Prince Caspian. And I'll just say that, you know, I, I've, I, I know not everybody loves Prince Caspian the way that I do, but I, I love it. And I even, this is true. I will sometimes throw my middle finger up in the air when, when they go into it, not towards the band, but being like, you know, after you guys, I enjoy the song. Towards you know, some to of, um, uh, Scott's, uh, coworkers at the Mockingbird, perhaps. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. They even right. have a name for it. Why don't you say the name, the nickname? Go ahead. Fucker Scotty? pants. Yeah. Fucker <laughs> pants. Exactly right. Fucker like pants. So I'll throw the middle <laughs> finger up at those guys. I, I, when, when they, when the band plays, I, I've literally been known to do this. I'll throw up my, the middle finger. Cause it's my way of saying, you know, forget it guys, just give it a listen, you know? And, and so this one, you know, the, the one at Magna Ball stands out to me at the end. I remember turning around being like, told you so. <laughs> I told you know? <laughs> so Caspian gets an unfair rep, but it's, it's uh, regardless of whether or not you agree with me on that, there is no arguing that the song can lead to some surprising places. Uh, this one is one of those just exceptional ones. Scotty talk to me. How does, Caspian get to Isabella. 
uh, by a tray just shredding. I mean, he hits on this like vicious repeated 16th note at like 180 beats per minute that just soars. And it almost is more like llama than Prince Caspian. I mean, it's like a llama jam in the middle of, of Caspian. I'm a fan of the show, the song, besides 1996 when I saw it every night. Um, but um, it was such a cool jam that they embarked upon. Again, this was a tray heavy night, and he just hit upon this series of notes that they used as a platform to just take off. And then they kept changing the tempo, and it's really a dynamic jam and they were all over the place and all of a sudden they just kind of went from a bliss jam to Isabella out of nowhere I I mean it's it's almost hard to describe it needs to be heard to be believed one of the best shows of the tour well actually let's talk first about uh, Tweezer Reprise closes the set and then we have a strong double encore actually uh, Gaiuti and Antelope and I want to hear closing arguments from both of you, but let's start with Scotty. Before we rank this show, I want to do that too. But Scotty, how did you like the uh, double encore? It was almost a, a dream encore. <laughs> um, I, I was shot. I, I totally thought Gaiuti was going to be the last song of the night. Ready, had my coat, ready to go. And then they start Antelope. And what an <laughs> Antelope it was. I mean, just a raucous version, the funky interlude at, at the end. And um, I just, that was one of the things that I just walked away sh- like, Gaiuti Antelope Encore, just like <laughs> almost repeating it over and over, like my brain was broken at the end of the night. One of those, the band totally didn't want to stop playing. Exactly, exactly. And it almost like set the tone for the Cavern and the Island Tour, which was only like eight shows later, where it was like, if you want to hang out, we're, <laughs> we're, we're still going to play. Well, I don't believe the the Island Tour was just eight shows later, but that that's obviously true. Um, and, and it feels like this, you know, I, my thoughts on the show is I think that... Uh, I, I think it's interesting that my favorite Fall 97 shows might be ones that don't sound like Fall 97 the whole way through, uh, this being one of them, and and Worcester also, um, but both of the, the second and third nights. But um, yeah, and Scotty, to your point earlier about how the set list doesn't tell the whole story, I remember walking out of of the uh, the Hampton show saying ACDC bad was, you know, like 
it, it, it's not about what it looks like on paper. It's about how they play. It's not what they play. It's how they play. And now I think that's, you know, wisdom that we all kind of know. It's not what they play. It's how they play. And, and this night was a, a great example of that. And I enjoyed it more upon re-listen and, and later on than I did that night. I think it was kind of overshadowed by what went down the next night. Um, but uh, uh, every time I've re-listened, I've found, I've, I've found something new to latch on to. In this show. It did kind of get overshadowed. And also there was, to be fair, without giving revisionist history, at the time in the first set, there was a, a moment I remember because I was uh, on the rail on the 200s, uh, you know, like front row of the 200s overlooking. And I remember thinking at one point, uh, like, am I jaded or is is the weed not working? What's what's going on? And then they kicked my ass in that. And, you know, the, the, I think by the time they got to Tweezer, I was, you know, bad, back on board, boys. <laughs> you know, I think I got the ahead. answer. I think I got the answer I want. Uh, the second the second show crushes this one, even though this is an amazing yeah. show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's the answer I wanted. And I thought, you know, I was going to, I was going to have you guys say it more subtly, but um, <laughs> um, it's unfortunately that time where security is rudely kicking everyone out of the building. <laughs> um, thank you to our guests, Scott Bernstein. And as always to my fellow undermine crew, Benji Eisen, RJB, Eric Limarenko, and Matt Dwyer. We'll be back tomorrow for the grand season finale. And with us, we'll have a special surprise guest. One of the musicians but it's probably definitely not who you're thinking. Scott, you probably know what I'm talking about. Don't give it away. I won't give it away, but get excited, people. <laughs> Before you start tweeting guesses, um, let me give a quick shout out to Cash or Trade, the world's only social network where fans buy, sell, and trade tickets at face value. If you need tickets for something you want to go to or have tickets for something you can't, then go right now to cashortrade.org. Please remember to review and subscribe. This is a good time. If you haven't done it this whole season, review our show and subscribe. Um, it, it'll help us no matter when you do it, wherever you listen or watch and whatever you do, do not re recreate. <laughs> whatever you do, do not recreate whatever you did 25 years ago after this show in Albany. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, see you back at the Knickerbocker tomorrow. Um, what a great review. Thank you so much, Scott, for this uh, show. I loved hearing it. And I also love this re-listen and I can't wait for tomorrow. I'm going to put it on probably right now. But until then, approach the night with caution. It's the best that you can do. Thanks, guys. Osiris. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon.
Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born, to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.